You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am going to be your rebellious host, Abraham. And I am going to be your counterculturist host, Shane. I don't know how to, I don't know where to go with that. I'll be your splintered values host, Shane. I can't, I can't, I'm not, I don't have a good one for that, but I, I'm here anyway. Those are good. And that kind of sets up because I was excited to talk about, there's this group of people whose customs and, and actions are centered all around countertops. And so, and that means we're talking about <laughs> counterculture. <laughs> we're big granite fans over here over at why we do what we do i'm not sure if y'all picked that up but um easy to clean looks nice easy to clean stone is really great like it's nice and cooling right right wood is not really great for countertops linoleum doesn't last very long so yeah linoleum sucks but we're gonna get in all the nuance of all that in this episode yes so of course we're not talking about <laughs> countertops which would be great before we actually do dive into this, I want to remind everyone to like and subscribe. If you, uh, wherever you listen to this, leave us a rating and review if you like what you hear. And uh, hey, join us on Patreon and all that sort of stuff. That way, I'll save you having to listen to this at the end. And instead, you can listen to the fun outtakes that our amazing audio engineer, Justin, is going to do when we inevitably flub and gaff and say silly things that should never make it to air. Yep. <laughs> and they'll do in sort of just a truncated format. So anyway. Yeah. So as we go into this episode, a quick disclaimer. So we cannot possibly capture every nuance, every circumstance, every situation of each and every culture, counterculture, and subculture that does exist. We understand that it is far more complex than that. The goal here is to kind of really talk more about how a counterculture or a subculture forms, like where it comes from and what that looks like. So it is legitimately impossible to account for all of the stuff that we would need to to provide the deepest dive possible on this. And, and given that we're only going to do this in about an hour, there's only so much we can we can really accomplish in that time. I would say, and, and this will come out as we're talking about this, you and I belong to some subcultures and counterculture groups. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about this, and I think in a, in a scientific way, in a curious way, in a generally supportive way. But all that being said, we're not arguing that counterculture and subculture or bounder, sub, sub, subbounder culture, as I was trying to mash it together, apparently. <laughs> We're not making the case that these are inherently good things. Like everything, it's complicated. There are some that are good, some that are bad. It's not, it's just, it just is. And then how it manifests is sometimes good and bad. So, you know, we'll provide some examples of that as we go through this, but we're just wanting to point out that they exist, what they are, why they are, that sort of thing. The goal of this episode is really to discuss the general idea of culture, counterculture, and subculture and how they kind of all intermingle. We really want to spend the time kind of looking at like, you know, where these different groups might formulate, why they formulate, what are some kind of catalysts for that. And we also want to discuss some of the unique subcultures and countercultures that might exist to just kind of highlight a little bit the idea of how they came about and, and what they look like and kind of what characteristics they might take on. Cool. So... The things that we're going to be tackling in this discussion was we want to be able to answer the question, what is counterculture and subculture, how these develop and the kind of impact it has on, on, I guess, humanity as a whole, as well as sort of in groups of people and cultures more generally. So let's get to the background on this. So in order to kind of orient everybody to the discussion, we have to be able to take some time to evaluate the entire context. So 
in order to understand one side of the coin, you have to take time to evaluate the other. And counterculture only exists in reference and in context to a more overt or dominating culture. So let's go ahead and take some time to kind of separate these out and parse these out a little bit. So if we're going to define culture, we're going to talk about basically the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of racial, religious, or social groups. That's kind of the overarching context in which we're talking about this is culture itself is the social forms, the beliefs, material traits of racial, religious, and social groups. And then that means that counterculture as an idea is a culture with values that run counter to those of some established society or culture. So it, it can really only exist as a comparison, a contrast, I guess, to the other to culture. Then with subculture, you're talking about some kind of culture that's derived from another culture. So you're going to see some kind of maybe some shared values or similar values or some parallels within that. They're not created as a uh, specific contrast to a, a culture, right? So they're usually within a culture, they share some of the values, but maybe they're kind of modified or evolved. Yeah, subculture like people who are enthusiasts of Subway sandwiches. Mm -hmm. Yes, or people who really love subterranean living spaces. <laughs> exactly. And subwoofers. Yeah, subwoofers. <laughs> people who like really deep base, people who like basements. Yes. And people who like base sandwiches because Subway isn't really doing anything fancy, I guess. Sub zero. Sub zero. Yeah. A, <laughs> <laughs> wherever we can apply that <laughs> prefix, I guess. Very specific Mortal Kombat fans. All right. Yes. Culture within a culture. That's subculture, which, you know, I think obviously a little bit intuitive there, but just in case, in case that wasn't abundantly yeah. clear. Okay. So let's talk about why this matters and why we're talking about this. So culture forms, I mean, I guess it encompasses a basic sort of understanding of the social rules and guidelines for people who belong to that group. We're talking about expectations, general practices, ways of being nuances and even language and attitudes, that sort of thing. And understanding the general nuances of a culture can provide important context for those specific behaviors inside of that culture, understanding what's considered, for example, taboo or not. In most cultures, how you greet someone is pretty unique. Certain gestures are either considered friendly or offensive. These are just small things that can actually have relatively large consequences. Nevertheless, things that are like much larger so, for example, clothing and fashion can be extremely important to certain cultures. And so if you shun that or you dress in a way that is different than the culture, the fashion of a particular culture, then that might be an example of this counterculture thing. But I, I get ahead a little bit. <laughs> to kind of go back to the idea of culture, let's, let's take a look at something as common as like a wedding, right? So when you look at customs of weddings and, and things that people do, they're going to be based on the general belief of the couple and maybe the overarching culture in which it exists, right? So in the United States, you might find yourself engaging in a Catholic wedding. If you've ever been to a Catholic wedding, sometimes they're very long and there's a lot of standing and kneeling and standing and kneeling and sitting and, and a lot of prayer, right? So there are a lot of rituals related to that. These are facts. Yeah, th this is facts. Or like if you find yourself at a traditionally Indian wedding, there might be some specific culture-specific dress, right? Such as wedding saris and things like that. So and again, that those are broad strokes, obviously, but those are different examples of how culture can influence certain customs. The dictionary defines wedding as the fusing of two hot metals. <laughs> anyway, just to make sure we're clear, culture is not solely religious, however, and you might get more refined the closer you begin to analyze a context where large groups of humans congregate and get together. And so you have this organizational culture. So for example, what is the culture like in your workspace? What does that environment look like in the place where you work? Then there's you know, city culture. 
what is the general feel of the community you live in? Is it an urban or rural sort of feel? Is it backwater alligator chasing <laughs> southerner or buffalo chasing northerner or hobbit hole dwelling New York City person or someone who lives in their car who's still stuck in traffic in LA? Yeah. What do those cultures look like, you know? And so I was born in a kind of smallish city and then moved to a bunch of smallish cities and the largest city I've actually ever lived in is in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay. And, you know, a few hundred thousand people. And so, you know, it's it's a decent size. It's no super metropolitan area like San Francisco or LA or New York or anything, but I mostly grew up in sort of smallish towns. You know, when I went to high school in a very, very small town, and I think most people who've experienced these rural and small town communities can speak to the fact that there is kind of a different feeling of being in a, in a place like that. I mean, for one thing, at least where I was at, you have so much space between you and the next person over. Uh huh. So you have zero motivation whatsoever to engage in any perspective taking or empathy for your neighbor because they're so far away they may as well not exist. Yeah. So you learn to really hate human beings living in a place like that. <laughs> totally kidding. Throwing myself and others under the bus. But but no, I mean, it, it, there is definitely this sense of because you are so distanced from people, I think there's a real sense of independence, at least where I was growing up. And I think that that fosters a, a particular kind of culture and people who value their their privacy in a very specific way. And, you know, the town I grew up in is very much so a beach town, but it's it's strange because it's kind of this this weird tourist space. Right. So you've got attractions very close to where I live. You've got Disney's right down the road. You've got Universal's right down the road. Our town itself is a big host for NASCAR. Like right now, at the time that we're recording, this is race week. So we we do have like. Normally, this time of year, we have about 150,000 people come into town just to go watch a race, watch a bunch of cars drive in circles. I personally don't understand NASCAR. I never have. Yeah. But everybody's got their thing. Now, you know, the city itself, though, is highly transient, right? So there is like this this kind of feeling of people coming in and out because it is a tourist town. So you've got, oh, this group of people coming in. Oh, it's bike week. So you've got this group of people coming in. They're here to see the sights and they're here and then they go. It's a very strange feeling to live here and have like half the population kind of come and go whenever they want. Yeah. Yeah. Because I grew up in a rural desert community, <laughs> largely <laughs> the culture around there was, there's a lot of hunting, a lot of farming, a very conservative place to be generally speaking. And a lot of like, we sort of do things our way type of place. Like that's yeah. the place where you go and no one will be wearing a mask during the pandemic. Yeah. And everybody ever knows everybody at the local watering hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, like the grocery store is like a 20 minute drive away and there's really not much between you and it. It's just that far and stuff like that, you know? So a lot of people go outside and shooting guns and that sort of thing. So big gun culture, big horse riding culture, big hunting culture, very much sort of old West style yeah. type of thing. And so that kind of highlights specifically the idea of culture in general, right? Like, you know, within organizations, cities, academia, we've talked about rural versus major cities. We've talked about regional. All of these are going to constitute very unique cultures within their own right. Like, and that's why we can't possibly account for, you know, the Daytona beach culture versus the Florida culture, which in Florida, there is not a culture other than like you mentioned, hunting alligators or going to Disney and riding roller coasters, or I don't know, there is actually like a very specific North South and like the panhandle of Florida, like North Florida is very like, it's almost like Southern Georgia. Yeah. South Florida is very like North Cuba. And then the panhandle <laughs> is like South Alabama. So like you've got this very strange kind of dichotomy there, but 
You know, each of these different spaces, they present unique contexts with specific rules, specific customs, specific food, music, dress, all that stuff. I mean, I wouldn't survive in Miami because I don't dress fancy enough. Like there is legitimately, I can't go to certain bars because I wear Converse. So like the, like they will not let you in at these certain spaces because of your shoes. Now that's not the entire city, obviously, but that's a very particular, that's more like South beach. And then central Florida is Disney. It's straight up Disney. Like there is just, for those of you who don't know, we might even do an episode on just the town of celebration. Celebration is a manufactured city that is owned by Disney that it snows because they put snow machines on the buildings to make it snow during the winter for Christmas. It is bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's its own thing like, it's its own thing it can be described straight as disney yep it's very david s pumpkins <laughs> it's its own thing it's its own thing <laughs> <laughs> all right so as we we're describing subcultures will often maintain a lot of the general characteristics of the culture from which it is derived so you might call it a parent culture although these may also be only sort of superficial or structural characteristics so for example oftentimes share language, laws, rules, etc. We've got bikers, hippies, board gamers, metalheads, etc. are all examples of subcultures which differ from the parent culture but still maintain some of the similar behavioral and other social norms of those cultures. I threw in a couple of those my, yeah. myself because <laughs> they're good. Some of them represent well, one of them represents us really well. Anyway, <laughs> then this idea of of countercultures, however, they differ greatly in their values and behavioral norms. As a matter of fact, they're almost opposites in some cases and movements around like the lgbt communities are often linked to things like counterculture groups such as the radical fairies yeah and the general goal of the group primarily is to normalize gender sexual orientation and identity at the time of their formation this was like a super radical idea which is of course becoming much more accepted generally over time as we've seen people move more and more toward the sort of acceptance of other ways of being but for a while, like that was that was extremely counterculture. It mm-hmm. was counterculture to value other people as individuals when they differed from the sort of upper ideal caste in the United States. So to kind of highlight this further, we're going to go over some examples of countercultures and subcultures. And specifically, again, we are going to talk about this idea that a counterculture is usually a, not a polar opposite, but definitely conceptually opposite from that parent culture. Whereas like a subculture is just going to be a subset, kind of like a subcategory within that. And again, we're not saying that these are good or bad. We're looking at these through the lens of just trying to define them scientifically, trying to to look at them from the perspective of a contextual analysis and just kind of understand that they are out there. Now, again, as we go through the ones that we're going to talk about here, there is one that we are explicitly going to say is bad as we go through. So don't worry, we will kind of highlight the ones, make our stance very clear on that. But right now, what we're trying to say is they simply exist. And we're going to kind of spend some time talking about different subcultures that are out there and and countercultures. But right now, let's focus on countercultures. All right. So first up, one of the more well-known, I think, is hippies. Ah, yes. Spelled H-I-P-P-I-E and not H-I-P-P-Y, which means that you use your hips a lot. Yep. That's (laughs) That's an adjective. You're, you're very hippie. Like you work in a restaurant and you're like a line cook and you have that one cook that's always closing the ovens with their hips. Yeah. That's someone who's they're, they're being very hippie. hippie. They're being hippie. Yeah. Yeah. It's an adjective. <laughs> anyway, this was idealized as a youth movement during the 1960s and it focused on the adoption of the sexual revolution and rampant drug use as a commonly cited elements of that culture. There's obviously actually quite a bit more to it. The hippies really weren't this all acid loving tie dyeing 
Grateful Dead worshiping peace signers, much of the movement also included an increased focus on expanded spirituality that was counter to the rigorous teachings found in Christianity, more commonly in the United States. So in this particular counterculture, it was running counter to specific Christian ideals. And although you did see people who embodied, I guess, that really what you might think of Woodstock style hippie culture, it definitely was broader than that. And it definitely didn't start that way. Instead, you had these people who I think were sort of just rebelling against what was considered sort of these traditional style values that Mm -hmm. they found oppressive. An interesting side note on this, because we'll talk about some of this later. The subcultures of punk and straight edge actually came out of the hippie movement because a lot of people got disenfranchised with the idea of peace and love. And they were kind of like, were angry about it. And then you have like bands like the Stooges who show up who are very anti-hippie and also very pro-heroin, but that's a different, (laughs) that's a different episode. So we're not, we're not talking about the Stooges right now. Another counterculture that we do kind of want to mention here is the idea of uh, polygamists, right? The idea of polygamy in, in that whole movement. And basically this serves as a counterculture to traditional standards in the U.S. who identified monogamous relationships as a hallmark of quote unquote traditional families and a standard of moral righteousness. And then comes Dan, who wants two wives. Now, it's obviously, again, more complicated than that, right? Like polygamy and polyamory is far more complicated than just some guy showing up wanting a couple extra people in his life that he can be like that he can just kind of have a sexual relationship with right and there is such a thing as ethical polyamory I recommend if you ever get a chance to check out a dissertation by Irene Kushner we can share that she did a really cool study pretty recently on the idea of ethical polyamory and what that looks like interesting yeah so there's no shame in that game but ultimately this was a slap in the face the idea of polyamory it was a slap in the face to traditionalists in the United States so much so that there are specific laws and rules that make polygamy illegal, right? Like they don't recognize polyamory specifically in marriage, right? You can't marry more than one person per law unless you're in Utah. And even then, I still think it's not quite legal. I actually think it's not in Utah. There are some sort of little pockets where this occurs. Right. But I I actually think that they got rid of it in Utah. But I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I think they were one of the last ones. Yeah. Now, kind of as a quick note, You know, we also know that there are times within this kind of counterculture that it can be abused, highly problematic. And we'll talk a little bit about kind of those ways that countercultures and subcultures can become problematic. But for the most part, ethical polyamory does exist. It works and it's and it's perfectly fine. Always the sort of consent versus exploitation thing. But yeah, there's also the green movement. And this is primarily focused, of course, on environmental conservation. We did an episode with a Green Party supporter last year, shortly before the election. Mm -hmm. But, you know, why is this a counterculture? And again, this is because it's running directly counter to something, which is the opposition of industrialized and urban expansion. And so this is was originally sparked following major environmental events, such as including hydrogen bomb testing, major oil spills. And this is a group of people who looking at the main culture being so heavily driven by petroleum, oil-based industries, other non-renewable resources and industries that create a lot of pollution, that sort of thing. People who organized as, as a group to say, like, we want to collectively engage in behaviors that are either directly against this type of industrialization and these practices, or at least are not in support of it. And for a great book on this, you can go read The Monkey Wrench Gang, a book about four highly intelligent professionals who got into the business of industrial sabotage. And Shane notes that this is one of his favorites. It is a really, really great book. It's a lot of fun. And they're, they're out in kind of the Midwest. So Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, that area doing some really cool stuff. So 
So the next one we want to talk about is this idea of the feminist movement. Now, let's be real. Okay. Rad women have existed since the beginning of time. Joan of Arc was such a baddie and she was so bad and so awesome that she threatened the toxic masculinity so much they had her executed. She was a brilliant military strategist and she is but one exemplar in the entirety of human history. So what's interesting about the feminist movement, though, specifically, is it is in direct opposition of patriarchal societies, right? The idea of male governed, male ruled societies where laws benefit men and not women. And there are plenty of examples of this that we can see. And they're actually pretty common pop culture icons, too. So, for example, during World War II, the war propaganda and Rosie the Riveter actually elevated women in the war effort, even though they weren't able to vote. Right. There was a big part of that that was really important. And this longstanding movement also helped gain women's suffrage, additional rights and divorce proceedings, body autonomy decisions. And this is kind of an interesting one because it's not going to be as overt as hippies. Right. Like it's not going to be as overt as some of the ones we've talked about, like where there are like specific defining moments. There are a lot of kind of this slow burn under the radar, but really powerful movements that occur. And so, again, this is not new or unique to the U.S. There were major feminist movements that took place in China alongside the Chinese Revolution in 1911. So there are a lot of these. You see these exemplars quite a bit, but they're really important movements. And this one specific is in direct opposition of patriarchal societies. I think there are a lot of people who disparage the feminist movement. I think a lot of people are going to define this a lot of different ways. But for me, the main take home about the feminist movement is this is saying that we want to increase the equity in both policy and cultural practice across the genders and say that no one should be held to different standards because of their gender or gender identity. And to say that there's anything wrong with that is like just monstrously ignorant. Right. I think it's weird. And there's just no reason for it. It's just saying like, no, you're less of a human. You do not deserve to be treated as a equal human because only humans get certain privileges and you're not that. It's absurd to me to have an anti-feminist stance. But again, like there are different ways of being feminist. And I can certainly understand that like some of those are pretty abrasive. And even though I, I can understand why they're abrasive, I also understand why people react to them a little bit more. But the gist of it, and again, this is as far as I can tell in in my understanding of it, is it really is just about increasing equity and treating people as all human beings and not assigning them very specific rights and privileges based on their gender identity. So exactly. Just wanted to point that out. The whole like anti-feminist thing is just drives me crazy. Or even like having the counterculture of menists who are like anti-feminist. It's just it's just ridiculous and sad. So all y'all just. Stop doing that. Yeah. It's dumb. All right. The next major counterculture group, (laughs) the one to rule them all, is America. (laughs) Hell yeah! (laughs) Take that, Britain. Yeah! Freedom Eagles fly! So, (laughs) I'm just, I have to comment on this. I love this idea that, like, a bunch of people were like, we're dealing with too much stuff over here. We're going to go start our own country. Right. Like that's how America started. Right. Like, I mean, really that's what it was there. This is too much. We're going to go do our own thing. And they left an entire established country to be like, we're going to go starve on another continent. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, small group of folks, they ditched Europe. They're like, see ya. We're, we're going to distant shores. They wanted to be free primarily of religious persecution so that they could do their own religious persecuting. They like, we want to be the ones in charge who persecute other people. And so that's that was their uh, <laughs> that's where they went. And, you know, they all headed to what has become the United States through a lot of persecution, genocide, that sort of thing. 
And hey, another one is that when we ran out of tea, because we all, you know, we threw it all in the ocean <laughs> and uh, all we had left was coffee. And so counterculture number two to Britain is our, our love of coffee here. <laughs> As they say, America runs on Duncan. Yep. And more importantly, on Starbucks. You know, that's not an exaggeration. So <laughs> it was just kind of scary. As you can see in all these examples, the reason these kind of cultures existed or they started to formulate was because they splintered off from their parent cultures. They created brand new cultures or brand new processes where they were in direct opposition of those different overarching dominant types of cultural traits. Now, to kind of spell this out a little bit more for the subculture component, remember subcultures are going to be a culture that exists within a culture that shares some of the same base characteristics, some of the same formats, some of the same elements, right? Those different characteristics that make the parent culture, but they have kind of like these nuances. They have these very specific things. And we're going to talk more about kind of how these, these are delineated, but now we're going to get into the idea of subcultures. All right. So, and this is actually where the whole idea from this episode more or less stemmed was talking about a particular few of these subcultures. One of them, or at least tangentially related to our main idea is skateboarding, mm -hmm. street, vert, thrash, long, <laughs> all the kinds as my brother would say the longboard is the wrong board so for you longboarders out there i'm so sorry and this is also not roller skating something that the the mm -hmm. skateboarders are not in favor of generally speaking very clearly yes at least have not traditionally been maybe that's changed i'm old <laughs> street skaters tend to have some flexibility with approaching obstacles so for example rails ledges gaps Whereas vert skaters tend to have a very specific style. So a pump at the bottom of the pipe, then gain speed for an air for big tricks, that sort of thing. And then thrash skaters tend to have sloppy, aggressive styles when they skate. So for example, you can go watch Mike Vallely skate, probably some YouTube videos of him up there. So yeah, this is a subculture that sort of exists within a culture that isn't necessarily running counter to anything other than traditional modes of transportation, I suppose. <laughs> it is more like... A group of enthusiasts who are uh, really excited about a a particular, I, I think to say it somewhat disparagingly, but not inaccurately, is a hobby. Uh -huh. That's just sort of a, a an activity that they rally behind. And also, too, skateboarding actually kind of came out of surfing culture. Like it became, it was like another like subculture of surfing. So like really interesting kind of how all this shapes up. And you'll see like same characteristics, right? You've got a board, you're gliding over a surface, right? That's really the primary characteristics, some of the language is the same, right? You shred the gnar and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know if anybody even says that anymore, but that's kind of the shared the shared part of this. And so another example of this is actually, and this is actually where exactly the, the idea for this episode came from, was the idea of punk rock and straight edge. So punk rock showed up and started to make a racket like in the mid 70s. Pretty much people will say like there's, there, you know, started with the song Louie Louie. People say it started with the Stooges and and then there's also the argument that it started in England or New York. And yeah, at the end of the day, it started in New York. The Ramones came first before the Sex Pistols. So and the Sex Pistols were just a punk boy band. They weren't really a punk band. <laughs> anyway, to kind of backtrack off my soapbox, punk rock kind of started as a response to glitter and folk rock. Right. So you had kind of like you had the Eagles and you had the Grateful Dead and you had all these bands that were putting out the stuff. And, and there were people who were like, no, we need something louder. The hippie movement failed us. So we need something that's loud, that rocks, that doesn't require us putting on patent leather and, you know, this glam rock type of thing. We need something that's different than Kiss, you know, and so punk rock shows up. And then as punk rock kind of took hold and you had the Ramones who were like the Johnny Appleseeds of punk rock that toured the country and started like all like started setting up punk scenes wherever they went. People kind of got bored with it. They're like, OK, so it's formulaic. It's simple it's too easy we need something with a harder edge and then 
with the rampant drug use that came along with punk rock, you had a lot of people dying of heroin overdoses and just like the alcoholism and all that. Another subculture formed out of punk rock and it was hardcore and straight edge. And so you had like bands like Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys that kind of started this hardcore movement. And then you had Minor Threat that started this straight edge movement, which was basically no drugs, no alcohol, no promiscuous sex. Like here you are kind of creating these rules for living a clean and sober life. And then, you know, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you can get into like vegetarianism, veganism. Hare Krishna shows up in punk and hardcore at some point in time. Like it is bonkers how like many subgenres there are and subcultures there are within punk rock. Yeah, there's definitely a thread of a sense of morality as the direction for this, which yes. is to say like a group of people saying we are very opposed to this because we think it's immoral or we're very in favor of this because we think it's moral. And there are many combinations of that that exist. And so these there's a, a lot of splitters, a lot of overlap with other movements and that sort of thing. And I definitely um, have been in part of this, you know, sort of on the fringes, I think maybe not necessarily in the trenches as much of the idea of this punk rock thing. And there is a, a lot that is, as you said, similar to the hippie movement of, we think that your declaration that this is the way things need to be is wrong. Mm -hmm. That tradition should not necessarily dictate how things always go. And that there is an opportunity to grow and change with the times as, as we learn more, as we have to, as we're sort of forced closer together as your human population continues to boom, mm -hmm. albeit during pandemics. And we learn to respect one another. We learn to accept one another. And so this idea that there is a way to dress and a way to look and all of that that is appropriate is sort of like saying no. And, you know, people are people. They're going to show up how they show up. And so the way to, I guess, really specifically advocate that is not only is it that I'm going to flaunt, I'm not going to follow your rules. I'm going to flagrantly go as the opposite direction as mm -hmm. much as possible. Yep. I'm like, you think that my skin should look clean and pretty? Well, I'm going to cover it with tattoos. Uh -huh. You think that my hair should be straight and short and cut in a specific style? I'm going to grow it long. I'm going to cut it long into spikes. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> you think men aren't supposed to wear jewelry? Well, I'm going to wear chains and bracelets. I'm going to pierce every flap of skin I can find on my body. Uh huh. Yeah. I like it. In a way, I actually like a lot of that resonated with me. It still does. Like I, I very much understand that approach. And again, because it's more inclusive, it is generally more compassionate to other people. Yeah. And again, like kind of to highlight this, right? Like if you're talking about punk rock in New York, you're talking about a subculture. It's split off from the norm, right? You've got this like genre of music in this culture where you still talk about fashion. You still have a shared language. You still have a shared connection through auditory means, right? Like you're talking about a music culture and it's just really kind of unique and interesting to see kind of how that's splintered off and then how within that it's splintered off and splintered off and splintered off and splintered off. And you have all these different these different genres within that. Another thing too, that I think that I liked about it is that the, the rebellious nature of this was not necessarily go out and burn stuff down, but it's like, I'm going to do this to myself. This is self protest. This is sort of the like hunger strike sort of thing. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not going to force you to do anything, but like I'm going to use myself as a model for these sorts of things. There's a, there's a lot of self-sacrifice and peace in that, that I found, I find inspirational. So a lot of it was out of necessity too. Right. So like when you, sure. when you read any history of like any punk band, they're like, Oh, I wanted to learn how to play an instrument. I could only afford this toy guitar. And I just picked up a guitar to start playing. Cause I wanted to be in a band. 
oh, we nobody, no record label would listen to us. Nobody liked us. So we had to start our own record label so that we could actually put out our own music so that people can listen to our music. We had to make our own merch. I mean, think of it as Uniform Choice out of California it was one of the first bands to start making their own merch by hand and selling their own merch so that they could actually make money while they were on tour. So like they had to like, there's this very DIY ethic within just all of punk rock, which is actually kind of a fixture of punk is like, it's very DIY. Right. And so that's like kind of like a, like a connective tissue among those different subgenres, including DIY tattoos, including (laughs) DIY tattoos. Don't, and also don't get a stick and poke. They're so dangerous. That's how you get hepatitis folks. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've evolved. I mean, (laughs) I understand why it happened in the first place, but there's better ways. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I got a a bonus recommendation real quick, which is the movie bomb city. Did you ever see that one? I haven't seen that one. It is a tough movie to watch. It is essentially about a group of punks. This is based on a real story. I think down in Texas, uh, a guy who was part of the punk culture there, who was really big into art, relatively peaceful dude, but got into a brawl with some of the local jocks in Mm -hmm. their area. And he was run over with a car. Yeah. Rough to see, hard to watch that happen to another person. And then to see the guy get off basically without any consequence whatsoever at trial. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, if you can stomach that sort of thing, I do recommend the movie. I think it's well done. All right. We got a lot to cover here. So let's, uh, let's move on to some other quick subcultures. There's of course, Mormonism. This is a branch of Christianity. Yes. It's a branch of Christianity. If you define Christianity as those who believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and is, is their Lord and savior. Then you're a branch of Christianity, which means that Mormon is a branch of Christianity. They do use the Bible and this moved away from specific biblical teachings in lieu of the teachings of John Smith, the one of the main prophets mm-hmm. and later Brigham Young. Yep. And I think most people have heard of them at this point. They generally are associated with Salt Lake City, but they really are all over the place. You know, it's, it's pretty widespread community at this point. If you come across the Seventh Day Adventist Church, that's kind of based on Mormon teachings. Oh, okay. And the worst of them all is the KKK. We're not going to give these dorks a bunch of of attention. So, but just know that they are also a subculture within Christianity in that they follow a lot of Christian teachings and they cite the Bible. And they, that's actually kind of like one of their core values is that they are a highly religious conservative group that does follow those teachings. However, the way I would describe them is that they are a very silly branch of Dungeons and Dragons fans who took the whole idea of wizards to a dangerous new level. (laughs) Is that just because they have a grand wizard? They have a grand wizard. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, again, they're a bunch of dorks as, as my point. So what do you have to say about that? Jordan Peterson, is that tribalism? <laughs> anyway, this is kind of an example of like how subcultures can go bad too. Obviously they're a problematic subculture and, and that's why we're not going to give them too much attention, but just to, to, to note that they are part of a larger, they do have a parent culture that they've splintered off from a little bit. And have infiltrated others as well. A mm-hmm. couple of other quick examples. Um, bronies, bikies, hall girls, and hipsters are all uh, examples <laughs> of other subcultures that are out there. I think hipsters are maybe splintering off into a group of fashionista hipsters and beer brewing hipsters. Mm-hmm. I could be mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah. For those of you who can't see me right now, I straight up look like the, t- the archetypal hipster. Like black frame glasses, big beard, long hair, flannel converse it's bad i feel like i tend to associate hipsters with very specific like haircuts as well yeah and i feel like you're a little too individual to be hipster but you you definitely look the part i look like an 80s metalhead at this point in time probably more yeah, than anything I, th- I think if you soften your voice and talked about how everything is artisanal then you would 
you could you could blend in pretty easily in like Portland. Yeah, I'll just keep telling people I listen to me without you. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> so we've broken all this down and we kind of want to know, you know, from the scientific perspective, why why does this happen and why does it matter? I mean, really, that's that's the core of this, right? If we're going to explain this phenomenon and study this, why does it happen to begin with and why does it really matter? And a primary reason why subcultures or countercultures form is due to issues of individualization. So you have larger cultures that simply cannot accommodate each and every individual value or belief. And so these traditional cultures form these smaller splinter groups that still operate within the larger cultural context, but have unique values, unique beliefs, and they match the individuals and beliefs of the folks that are part of those cultures. Absolutely. And so at what point does a culture turn into a subculture? At what point does they sort of break off and, and form these little splinters? I mean, it usually begins with a shift in values. An easy comparison is the unique branches found within religious practices, as we've described already. There are stark differences in the values of Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopal practices, although I personally couldn't enumerate what those are, uh-huh. far, as far as I can tell, they're never mind. Um, within a larger <laughs> culture of uh, religious or spiritual practices, we have these sort of splinter groups. Right. And today we can see these similar movements like protest cultures are operating in direct contrast to larger systems. Jordan Peterson wouldn't agree, but the Black Lives Matter movement is counter to the overarching culture that includes systemic racism. And it is a direct counterpoint to a culture where problems persist. So you have these cultures that do arise that are these powerful movements that are specifically in contrast to these more problematic situations. And we're at a very unique point in time as we're recording this at about the time that this is going to come out. In the year 2021, mm-hmm. the year of our Lord, 2021, <laughs> we're beginning to see the development of a subculture within the Republican Party. Now, I feel like in my experience, this the part the Republican Party has for the last several decades been very sort of cannibalizing. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of in-group fighting that happens, but there is this this really, I think, visible schism that is occurring right now and this growing split between folks who report to be abiding by what you might think of traditional conservative values versus the shumping of the sort of Trumpist view of conservative values, which are much further to the right, tend to include a lot of conspiracy theories, authoritarianism in favor of like tyranny. Fascism, maybe is fascism, a good word. Yeah. 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 Pretty unapologetically pro-fascist, pro-authoritarian regime. So here's the thing that I never thought I would think is that there have been times where I have sided with Mitt Romney on issues like recently where he's like, right. I'm like, how did this get here? Because this is the same guy that said like corporations are people, right? So like I know vehemently, I do not agree with Mitt Romney on any value really, truly. But the fact that like he's spoken, I've been like, yeah, it makes me question who I am as a person. I know I've, I've been hearing some of like <laughs> Mitch McConnell said some things lately, and I'm like, I think I need an aspirin because I feel like I just agreed with something Mitch McConnell said. Yeah, it's it's very unsettling. It's a very strange time. But <laughs> on a serious note, like you're looking and seeing this actual divide, and it's and it's in part due to specific values and specific beliefs in relation to this larger parent culture, right? The parent culture being the GOP, the parent culture being like larger conservative political values, and then you're kind of seeing that split off. Yeah. I think we could also call it the sort of post-truth yes. alternative facts, mm-hmm. I think. And I mean, again, this is pretty self-proclaimed. Like, this is like where, you know, people say, yeah, I'm the crazy Q conspiracy theorist person. And I'm like, I mean. What? <laughs> that's like saying like, yeah, I eat battery acid because I know it's it'll kill me. I wonder if Mountain Dew will ever come under, like, they'll have a class action lawsuit from QAnon, given like all those folks probably just drink nothing but Code Red. <laughs> red so it's good <laughs> it's it that's it i drink the red pill so why does this matter why in all this context when we're talking about this why does it matter evaluating this provides a context in which humans 
can we can actually conceptualize their behavior a little bit and we can provide uh, valuable insight into their motivations, their values, as well as social expectations for behavior. So if we start kind of analyzing a subculture or a counterculture, we can start analyzing those different rules and those different values and those different expectations for social behavior and get an idea of why people do what they do within that context. So for subcultures, some of the analysis is, is already complete. You know, we can see that there are these splinter of sorts where some of the parent values from the original cultures still exist. And then these modifications allow us to understand how groups can sort of evolve over time and, and from where they evolve. So as we kind of start looking specifically at subcultures, we want to kind of take a look at these three possible reasons why this happens. And then you've got deviance, resistance, and distinction. And so specifically with deviance, what you'll find is that subcultures form due to a lack of socialization within the parent culture. We kind of talked about that, right? Like that some folks don't fit the quote unquote norm. And so those folks might actually be considered outliers and they might find some sense of social belonging with other outsiders. And as a result, they deviate from the norm. Also, you've got resistance, right? So you've got folks that within traditional parent cultures, they might find something that they disagree with. They might find a value that they that they they don't align with and they resist that specifically. And you can kind of see that in punk rock and hardcore too, where you've got like the kind of the, the general vibe is that you've got hippie movements, which are peace, love and no war and, and kind of like that, like kumbaya type of feeling at the time. Then you had like glam rock people who were all about the show and not about substance. And you had punk rock that was like in resistance to all of that. That was like, no, we're going to blow your minds with good rock, but we're going to say something and really kind of point the camera at you, right? Like specifically, I think of Black Flag, the band Black Flag. If you go look at their sure. history, their entire thing was we're going to do what we want. We're going to kind of make you look in the mirror and and be really confrontational. They were a, an, an incredibly confrontational band from the time that they started until the time that they broke up. I mean, they were all about like, this is what society looks like. This is what anxiety looks like. This is what depression looks like. Here it is in your face. This is real. And so there was like kind of a resistance because punk rock wasn't doing that at the time. And then finally, we have distinction. And this subculture might, I guess this isn't a subculture, but uh, this is when subculture might form as a result of deliberately trying to differentiate from the parent culture. And so this is simply the formation of a group within a larger group. So for instance, as we described in skateboarding, you might have street skaters versus vert skaters, very different styles by which they perform, that sort of thing. But mostly you just have this differentiation from that parent group. And so the, the one of the defining characteristics is how it contrasts with the other group. And I think, you know, uh, just something to say really quick here is that you might be hearing that, like, how do you draw the line between one culture and the next? And there isn't one. These categories are arbitrary. They're just ways of classifying these things by features that seem like they're relevant in understanding how and why they happen. And so there isn't like a, a real clear specific definition for when does it stop being punk and become hardcore? When does it stop being counterculture and become regular culture? Because these things also are nebulous. They change and they shift over time. And it really just has to do with a group of people who you have some people who they, they listen to each other. They read certain books or they have certain sources and they essentially arrive at these are our values. I'm going to hang out with like minded folks who have those similar values, and we're going to learn and build and grow from one another. That's going to include or exclude certain people. And so then the new members who come into that group are going to shift that dynamic a little bit. The ones that left are going to, again, shift that dynamic a little bit. And it's going to grow and change and evolve. And they are, you know, it's just a, a way that people show up and they congregate and they arrange themselves and organize themselves by certain principles. 
And as we said, there's some of these are very morally directed. Some of them are religiously directed. And some of them, there's a you know similar overlap with others that they see a meaningful distinction from one another. But yeah, I think that's the useful thing to understand here is just that the reason that they that they tend to exist, as and we'll describe this more in just a moment. But is that that this is a group that supports the group. Mm-hmm. It's a safe place to be. It's a supporting place to be. It is those behaviors are reinforced. Those behaviors are encouraged and modeled. Whatever the behaviors are of that of that group. And so that's why it tends to sort of exist. And sometimes that is just the mainstream. And sometimes it it never expands very large and it, it maintains just a small niche sort of group. But I think it's useful to just understand that that sort of angle to it. And part of this, too, is is like we said at the beginning of this episode, we can't possibly drill down to all the specific elements that go into this. I mean, when there are defining features of specific subcategories and subgroups and all that, like, I mean, they, they do exist on some level. But those lines like the, you know, the specific criterion by which something becomes a subculture versus a counterculture, that doesn't exist in itself. Right. That's that's nebulous. That requires a lot of different analyses and different interpretations of what might be going on or interpretations of what is part of that group. And then even within that group, there's within groups. So, and as a specific example, this is where we can kind of get in some of the research on this, right? So Fine and Kleiman in 1979 actually provided some clarity on the differences between subculture and sub-societies, right? So as we start drilling down even further, we start looking at this idea of sub-society, which is looking at some kind of semi-independent society within a larger society. And, And this is something you can kind of look at like, the individual boroughs in New York city, right? Like, so every borough in New York has a very specific, unique type of semi-independent process. Like, right. They have their own subways and subway stops. They have their own restaurants, their own markets, their own living spaces, their own, they kind of operate independently of one another. Right. I mean, it's hard to know when you're walking into like, the Bronx or like I, at least I do. I don't understand the boroughs myself. Like I've been there several times. I can't navigate New York. I, I, even though it's like a grid, everybody's like, it's a grid. I'm like, I get that it's a grid, but I come from a place where there's 10 streets and there's a beach. There's no beach here. I know there's Coney Island, but I don't, I don't use that in relation to getting to Times Square. Like this doesn't make any sense anyway. So sub society being these independent kind of operating boroughs, the subculture within that would be those unique values or central themes within that. This would be like kind of how punk and hip hop formed in certain areas, right? This would be like how, like, you know, some boroughs might be more hip hop based or some parts of it like might be punk based where CBGBs used to be. And now I think it's like a thrift store, which is kind of sad, but you've got these different kind of unique aspects or unique defining characteristics A sub society being an independent operating thing where subculture is kind of the unique values and beliefs within that. It occurs to me we maybe should have touched a little little bit more, as you mentioned, hip hop, a little bit more on on sort of rap and hip hop and, and that that is a as a counterculture movement also. Yeah. That has existed, which is I think very fascinating and probably deserves quite a bit of attention on its own. So I actually think we also could dig in a little bit more on some of the punk rock and straight edge scene and hardcore and that sort of thing in a future discussion, but yeah. for the purposes of this, you know, it's a, ve- a vehicle for talking about the counterculture thing. This episode's a primer for all, for those episodes. Yeah, there you go. So Brazina and colleagues in 2004 discussed how a subculture of violence does exist within specific street culture. And in that discussion, they provide a possible hypothesis for increasing street violence as subculture extends from a subset of unspoken rules that then pit groups against one another. And then as a reaction to disrespect, which is to say a violation of their understanding of those rules and those senses. And this with respect to being a primary value within street culture, violence has developed in very specific subcultural responses And so some of these groups, again, you'll see a large amount of violence. Some of them are themed specifically around violence, like the KKK, 
but many of them it sort of erupts as uh, within within the subculture itself. Yeah. And then finally, too, you've got Moran 2010 discusses punk as a counterculture that includes unique subcultures. So basically what that means is like within punk, we and we kind of talked about this, how there's these different subsets, these different splinter groups. And specifically, one of the subculture values of, quote unquote, do it yourself emerged as an aspect of some of the punk cultures. So bands like Uniform Choice, like I mentioned earlier, or Minor Threat began to create their own merchandise independent of record labels. They began to like spray paint T-shirts and like put together their own record sleeves. I recommend everybody going to listen to anything that's on Discord records like Fugazi and all that. Uh, really great label. And then Black Flag actually started their own label, SST, just so they could press their own records. Like they actually created a record company just so they could do their own stuff. I think, you know, that's that's the gist of what we have on just understanding this sort of subculture thing. You know, I think the one of the main take home points is that these subcultures tend to be an evolution from some kind of parent culture. They splinter from their original values, whereas these countercultures tend to be in direct response to some other culture. So a specific contrast to something about another culture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were kind of on the outset looking at this question of, is there any benefit to defining or describing culture, counterculture and subculture? And the answer is yes. Right. So so this gives us a better understanding of different contexts where or values where people might engage in certain behavior. They might have certain thought processes. They might develop certain languaging around particular phenomenon and concepts. And so we definitely need this idea of being able to define and describe what these are. However, it's not quite clear. Right. Like the, those lines are not quite as drawn as we like to think. We tend to want to put things in these nice, these little packages, and we simply can't when it comes to stuff like this. It's far too nebulous to get a clear definition of every single culture, subculture, counterculture, or sub-society that does exist within the scope of humanity. Yeah, and I think I'll end my last one at least on the idea that these exist because, I mean, humans are social creatures, and we thrive in groups. Many animals thrive in, in groups, some larger than others, but uh, but we're pretty social and we tend to work well in groups. And what that ha- happens, though, is that at a certain threshold, the groups can sort of form their own new sort of smaller groups within that within that set. And the reason that these exist is because like you again, it really just has to do with the group of people supporting one another and setting the expectations and behaviors and the sort of system of reward and punishment for uh, certain types of actions and values and that sort of thing. And that that guides a lot of, of that group. And so it, it sort of builds its own momentum in a lot of ways. And if that group is successful, then it brings on new members. And if it is not successful, then it'll eventually will die out. And most of the time, it's going to sort of evolve and shift no matter what. So that's sort of my, I think, my last thing on that. I think that's exactly it. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's just interesting to me. I guess that's probably my final take on point. It's like, to me, it's just very interesting yeah. to see. And, and we should be prepared to think that like, okay, so so there's not going to be a clean fit for every single human that exists. There's going to be these branches. There's going to be these splinters. There's going to be these breakouts that that exist. And while some of them are horrible, right? Most of them are not. You know, like, I mean, all you have to do is go on Reddit. Right. And see the different like, I mean, that is a that is like a like a perfect diagram of like culture and subculture and like the minutia and like you want to really drill down, just go on Reddit. That's a really kind of like an interesting example. Speaking of which, we're on Reddit. If you want to come talk to us on there. Oh, that was a fantastic plug. Yeah. Hey, thanks. I have my moments. But in the meantime, like, you know, it's just probably one of the more interesting things about this is that there is like a codependency with this. Right. Mm. 
Yeah. Not necessarily that like every culture in itself is independent of one another, but in order to define it, a lot of times what we do is we define it in contrast to something else, right? So so every one of these definitions that we talked about, punk and straight edge, we talked about punk versus the hippie movement. We talked about the KKK versus Christian values. We talked about Mormonism. We talked about all these things and every one of those things that we talked about, every culture, every counterculture, every subculture, we shown the light on it in relation to something else, some kind of codependent or interdependent type of definition. So to act like they are separate things is just bogus and unrealistic. They are absolutely dependent on one another for them to exist. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. I think that's all I got on talking about counterculture and, and subculture for today. You got anything else? Nope. Just go watch every Rodney Mullen video and he's his own subculture within skateboarding. Oh. I love Rodney Mullen. He's so good. I mean, at least I don't know him personally, but I, I love those videos. They're just mind blowing to watch. So mm-hmm. that was your second bonus recommend. Yeah. Speaking of which, let's have some recommendations. Yes. Recommendations. Okay. So I'm going to recommend a board game because that's all I want to do. And um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a game called Mastermind. And it is for two players. I mean, you probably could play on teams in some capacity if you wanted to. It's a really cool, very, very straightforward. I mean, the rules are incredibly simple. You could learn this game in three minutes, maybe four minutes. But what's great about this game is it is it requires a high level of deduction and sort of problem solving. And so it's the very simple presentation is that one person has picked sort of a pattern and you try and you have nothing to go on at first. You try and guess that bat- pattern the best you can. And then they give you some sort of esoteric clues about the your pattern of how much of it was correct, incorrect, that sort of thing. And you use those to try and derive a next guess. And so it's just a series of guesses until you get the right answer. One person knows the pattern is they're trying to essentially they want you to take a long time to get there, but they have to be honest in telling you, you know, giving you feedback. Yeah, that sounds fun. Hey, Abraham, what does esoteric mean? Uh. <laughs> Esoteric means it's sort of likely to be understood only by a small group. So it's sort of niche. It is highly specific to only people who would have a, a specific understanding of, of something, which is to say, in this case, the person who's giving sort of these vague, ambiguous clues would know what those are uh, mean exactly. And you might have sort of vague understanding. And this is an example. So good catch. Yeah, of course, of course. All right. My example or my, I guess not my example, my recommendation this week is a book. And actually, if it's really in line with the concept here that we talked about, I just finished reading Spray Paint the Walls, which is the kind of the history of Black Flag, the band, which were, you know, they're technically considered like, if not the first hardcore band, one of the very first hardcore bands that existed. But they are absolutely the example of like kind of what like the punk rock do it yourself mentality is, but also like that they did not subscribe to any rules. Like once people started really liking them, they were like, oh, you know, you like these short, fast, loud songs. We're going to write 10 minute long instrumental songs that you don't like. And, and so they were kind of like really interesting in that regard. Now, of course, there's a lot of like drama and nonsense that goes along with this band. They've had four separate singers, the most famous of which is Henry Rollins. But yeah, Henry Rollins, yeah. actually, they've had five separate singers. I, we mentioned Mike Vallely earlier mm-hmm. as a thrash skater. He is now the current singer of Black Flag, which is just uh, he's just ultimately a, uh, a Henry Rollins carbon copy. <laughs> Please don't tell him I said that he will hurt me, but it's it's just a really interesting kind of look into how difficult it is to be in a band and to be part of a counterculture or a subculture that doesn't really exist, like kind of building it from the ground up. I mean, they were touring well into the mid eighties and making literally no money and starving. 
their van was catching on fire and they were a very famous punk band at the time. So, you know, it just really interesting stuff. So anyway, it's called spray paint the walls and it's just the, the history of black flag news headline. Small podcast gets shredded on Twitter by Mike Vallely. <laughs> small town podcaster gets murdered by <laughs> Mike Vallely over podcast comment. Yeah, comparison to. <laughs> it's no wonder you had so many facts about Black Flag all locked and loaded to go for this episode. I literally just finished the book last night. <laughs> Man, that's great. Yeah. All right, perfect. If you own any Black Flags or play the game Mastermind and want to tell us about those, we'd be happy to hear it. If you belong to a subculture or a counterculture, that would be fascinating. I'm very interested to hear what groups they believe that they belong to and any information you have about that group that you're willing to share would be really cool. So please yeah. reach out to us at our email info at www.wwdpodcast.com. You can also reach us on all of our social media places, Twitter, Instagram, all that sort of thing. We are there. We will respond. We love hearing from people. So please reach out to us. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane. Mm -hmm. I believe that's all we have. So this is Abraham. This is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Hi again, folks. Abraham's not here. He had to run an errand in the middle of the episode. And so what we're doing now is we have this small interlude where I'm staring at his camera and there is nobody at his desk and the door is closed. I hope that he doesn't get lost. I hope that he keeps his cats inside. Because it does happen sometimes when people open doors, cats run away. Also, Abraham has a brother and I always forget that he has siblings. So um, with that respect, he's back and we're ready to begin.